An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside Ed, we have a very special guest, retired Ambassador Howard Gutman. If a certain beer company ever wants to bring back its most interesting men in the world commercial, it might consider Howard. For more than 25 years, Howard was a high-powered Washington lawyer representing the normal clients like Fortune 500 companies and financial service firms, labor unions, but also a member of the Weather Underground, a Brazilian ex-president, acting Secretary of State Lawrence Ziegelberg. Howard Clark for Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart served as special assistance to then FBI Director William Webster on counterterrorism and counterintelligence. Appointed ambassador to Belgium by President Obama, he was so beloved that he was named the most popular ambassador in Belgium ever from any country. And the King of Belgium presented him with a grand cross of the Order of the Crown. In a totally different field, when Howard was asked to provide technical advice to a television series about how a Washington lawyer really acts. He was so good that director Steven Soderbergh and star George Clooney said, what the heck, forget about the actor, let's just hire Howard. And his film and television career now include appearances in Fame and with Tim Robbins in Noise. Oh, and he also worked for legendary news reporter Fred Friendly and the icon of the 1970s, Steve Rubell, who ran Studio 54, and forever change the ethos of how America views sex and drugs. Today, Howard runs the Gutman Group, advising corporations and serving on boards of directors of both established and startup companies. He also hosts, as I see it, a political commentary show for Audacity. And though a Democrat, Ambassador Gutman is a frequent guest on Fox News. He's also a leading expert and businessman dealing with our ports and offshore wind power. Welcome, Howard. Thanks so much, John. I'll just let it end there and we can cancel the podcast as a commercial. Uh, feel free to cut and paste it as you wish. So let me ask you a question. What's your origin story? I, I always ask people this because interesting people often have interesting lives, but I'm also asking you specifically because we share a lot of early life details. We were both born in the Bronx and we were classmates in both high school, and again at Columbia College of Columbia University. Now, I'm perfectly satisfied with my life and career, but I'm not the guy who's worked with a Supreme Court justice, been a counterterrorism specialist at the FBI, palled around with President Barack Obama, Steve Sonnenberg, George Clooney, the King of Belgium, Stephen Bill, and Fred Fridley. So how did you become the person you are, both professionally and personally? First of all, some people would say it's a matter of drive, and I've never thought of it as drive, although I suspect there must be a component somewhere. Uh, certainly, there's a bit of luck, but I would think I would summarize it as didn't know any better. Uh, and I think that might be the best and most important trait 
My father was an illegal immigrant. He had spent 27 months in the woods of Poland during the Holocaust. Couldn't get out of Poland because of quotas. So he'd come in with a phony name from the country of Danzig, which was a free state at the time, although he was Polish. So he had a phony Danzig passport. So I was actually born lower middle class to that might be generous and the streets of Whitestone, Queens that we didn't have a nickel and I didn't know any better. Uh, and I couldn't care less. We seemed to have all we needed. So you just studied hard. And when you study hard, the smart kids went to Bronx High School of Science where we met. And then at Bronx High School of Science, the truth is, in my neighborhood, you had three routes. The smart kids went to Queens College. The less smart kids went to Queensborough Community College. And the less smart kids went straight to work. I said, there's got to be more. And I negotiated with my father that I could go to State University at Albany. Instead of 500 a year, he would spend 1000 a year. I applied to State University of Albany and Queens College. I had gotten accepted at State University of Albany, and I had planned to go. When my father died when I was 16 in our senior year of high school, I was gone for a month, walked into our guidance counselor and said, I have to take a year off from college because I can no longer afford Albany and I can't leave my mother. She said, you knucklehead. For financial aid, they only count the assets and earnings of the living. My father had made $12,000 his last year, rubbing two nickels together, and that I could afford to go to any school uh, in the country. And I said, but I haven't applied anywhere else. It's now March of our senior year and I have to stay in New York. She asked, would I rather go to Columbia or NYU? I said, what are you talking about? But if I have a choice, Columbia sounds great. She picked up the phone and at Bronx High School of Science, I was accepted to Columbia without ever having applied. You can look today, there is no application from Howard Gutman to Columbia. That's what kind of the luck had. Once you're at the top of Columbia, graduate as the top pre-law, you end up at Harvard Law School. Once you graduate magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, you end up on the Supreme Court. And then the world is open to you. And I never knew better than to, 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 to think not. I just followed where it went. So don't know any better is the, uh, is the answer here. I, 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 I tend to think you're right. I think a lot of people self-limit. And if you don't know any better, you don't self-limit. Let's move ahead to your last public position, being an ambassador. I want to ask a naive question about it. Just what does an ambassador do? And, and I'm, I'm not being cute here. I mean, traditionally, ambassadors represent America in matters of state, but it's 2022, and even when you were there some 10 years ago, global communications enabled governments to talk to each other instantaneously, State Department to the equivalent, and big picture policies and made in Washington. Yet, embassies remain a focal point. So why are ambassadors still important? What do they do? And how has that changed over time? You remain the focal point for America. And therefore, since America sets so much of global policy, you represent the voice of America, but also that global policy to your constituency, your constituency being the country you're, you're serving in, um, both to its government and its people. Let's say Ukraine. Russia invades Ukraine, and what are we going to do about it? Well, Tony Blinken's talking to Joe Biden, and they're talking to Lloyd Austin, and they're figuring it all out. Um, and they're going to want something at the NATO level, at the EU level, at the France level or Belgium level. And there are experts who deal at each of those levels. By then, you should have been on first name basis with the prime minister, the defense minister. And so the message goes out. Here's what we'd like. We'd like them to make sure they've got their commitment to 2% of the defense budget. And if they can do more, 
and we'd like to marshal this much military contributions. But then Tony Blinken trusts Howard Gutman that he'll know the prime minister, the defense minister, you know your client, you know that the group you're working with, that you can go do the best job of conveying that and getting that done. I remember when I was ambassador, we were in Afghanistan and we wanted the surge troops for Afghanistan. So we wanted the NATO members to commit more troops to Afghanistan. And on that ask, the Dutch government fell and the French government fell. And if the Dutch government doesn't do something and the French government doesn't do something, it ain't likely you're getting the Belgian government in the middle to do it. But we got the surge troops. I was the first ambassador to appear before parliament. I went national on television. I took the case to the people and the government saw that there was a way. But the only way you could do that in Belgium is to convince people, which I believe because I believed in Barack Obama, that in fact, this wasn't to do more war. This was to do less war. This was to, to escalate so we could get out. It took Joe Biden to get us out. But in fact, we were able to reduce the escalation was for a limited period of time. We kept our word. And luckily, no Belgian ever died serving in Afghanistan. Had they, the country wouldn't have been able to continue to, to, to support us. So it's a great example of you being an effective ambassador. But you were more than an effective ambassador. I want to go into some of just the, the popularity you had. It's hard for Americans to understand this. I mean, I don't think Americans even know who the ambassador from the UK is here, the, even the ambassador from Canada, some of our closest allies. And I've never heard of an ambassador as liked and respected in his or her side country as you were in Belgium. I mean, a major Belgian newspaper wrote a headline about you and it read, the ambassador that makes us love the US again. And that's nice, but okay, it's normal political commentary in a newspaper. There's a town that erected a monument just because you visited there. And you were such a fixture on Belgian television that you wound up presenting the Song of the Year Award at the Belgian equivalent of the Grammys. So, I mean, you seem to just connect with the Belgian people. How do you do that? You're representing the greatest product there is, the United States. And if it's not going well, there's a disconnect. Right before I got there, before Obama, we used to say the French were anti-American. We remember when we renamed French fries, freedom fries, because we would no longer call them French fries. Well, that was after we invaded Iraq for weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. And in fact, Belgium had been a lot more hostile. Belgium closed Belgium airspace to U.S. planes. They closed the port of Antwerp to U.S. ships, and they indicted Donald Rumsfeld for genocide. So I got there at that point. Obviously, where there was a disconnect, but I was representing the person who I knew Belgium would love and respect most in the world and ultimately was the most popular person in Belgium, which was Barack Obama. And obviously, we had not been great partners in the four years beforehand, for whatever reason. So the first thing I had to do was listen and respect what I was hearing. So we did a couple of things to do that. First, always U.S. ambassadors talk in English. They don't bother to give the respect of the local languages. Now, Belgium is a hard place for 11 million people. They all speak English, but half the country speaks Dutch and half the country speaks French. So I took French lessons Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, starting 7.30 in the morning, and Dutch lessons Tuesday, Thursday, and different TV stations that would do day in the life. If they were Flemish television, they'd always start with my Flemish lesson that morning. And the school kids would see the U.S. ambassador struggling with, except whole respect for the Skonhai Fanental. You know, they... 
They would see me struggling like they did, and they knew I cared enough to, to, to listen. The other thing I knew is ambassadors spend a lot of time with the ministers and at the parliament, but opinion comes from the people. We had to change the partnership, and you change partnership with the people, and that meant a couple of things right away. First, I vowed to visit every Belgian city, village, and commune. There were 576 no one had ever done that. I, in fact, visited every Belgian city, village, and commune. Um, and Belgian television covered my doing it. Second, you know, most people make their debut at the American Chamber of Commerce. That was what my embassy had suggested. And I said, Barack Obama didn't send me here to speak to the Chamber of Commerce. I will. Obviously, I'll talk to the American businessmen. One of your prime requirements is to promote American business, and I love doing it. But I first have to deal with the people. And so I went and made my first appearance in Charleroi. It's a major city, Francophone city, but it's a working class city. I don't want to insult any other city or not, but it's a classic lower middle class working man city. No U.S. ambassador had ever been to Charleroi, let alone appeared there. And in Belgium, if you pick one spot, the other region won't come. So Flanders, the Dutch speakers in the north are not going to cover an appearance by a U.S. ambassador in Wallonia in the French part. But when a new U.S. ambassador representing Barack Obama is appearing in Wallonia. So by the time I got there, the fire department had closed for the day and all the firemen were out with their trucks and the crowds were in the thousands. And it was a massive welcome and it sent a message. And we kept that that throughout the four years. It's very different from what we see in our day to day political discourse today. You're describing nice retail politics. I think of it as, you know, New England town hall meetings with, with the local people and everything. But realistically, in the U.S. politics, it's larger. The advent of social media has, I'd say, let me use the word coarsened our discourse over time. And the political attacks always have been personal. We can go back in history, but they've become really vicious and designed to destroy people. I've experienced it myself. I was working for an elected official who was accused of abetting an infamous inside traitor. I should note the allegations were entirely without merit. My boss got written clearance letters from both the district attorney and the Department of Justice, but the process lasted months. There were front page headlines and lead television stories about it, and it was emotionally draining dealing with the leaks of the allegations. And I wasn't even the subject of the false accusation. Now, as an appointed official, you've been attacked, and you've also, as a lawyer, counseled high-ranking elected and appointed officials and others in the public eye who've been attacked. So two questions. First, what does it say about our society that compared to going to working-class towns and meeting people and having those discussions, our method of discourse seems to be spread rumors on social media? And second, how do you counsel, and I use that word in all its connotations, people who are being attacked, who are high profile. I'm sure some just want to curl up in a fetal position till it all passes, but I suspect that's not the advice you give them. So John, I couldn't agree more that we are broken. I'm hoping still, I'm always a believer in institutions and an optimist. I'm hoping still we're not irrevocably broken, but we are broken. So politics and public service have become sport. 
The goal is to win. It doesn't matter who you kick in the head on the way. You know, even after the Stanley Cup, you might check people in the boards, but then you shake when it's over and you realize you're both getting paid by the National Hockey League. You're both Americans. We have forgotten that. Now, there's a bunch of reasons, I think. We used to be okay when we had Walter Cronkite. So when we had Walter Cronkite, we each could form our views, but we at least started with the same facts. We'd hear the events, then we'd start with the facts, and they couldn't be that personal and they couldn't be that vicious. With social media, I don't hear at all what 46% of the country is listening to, and they don't hear what my 46%. 38% of America does not believe that Joe Biden is president of the United States or is lawfully president of the United States. We are in the greatest country in the world, and more than a third couldn't even accept an election and courts. So the social media and our system, that is skewed, and then it gets vicious. What you do about it is you have to change who you are a little bit. So I have a local Maryland party official. This woman has been more dedicated. She's never wanted anything for herself. And throughout her career, the only people I happen to know she supported were Black candidates, African-American candidates. And she got chucked aside by the Democratic Party in Maryland a couple of weeks ago for something she said on a phone call that they tried to claim, oh my God, she gave a, a, a racial statement when there couldn't have been anything further from the truth. And not one of the people running for governor, there's 10 Democrat candidates, not one stood up and said, are you frigging kidding me? We're going to destroy this woman who's fought for our party and for all of us. Um, not one of the current Democrat governor's candidates did. Now, one or two of the black candidates and black officials she previously worked for stepped up and said, this isn't, you're taking it totally out of context. This isn't her. Um, but I went on my radio program. I have a Saturday morning radio show called As I See It. Um, I went on, did a whole show on it and lambasted the 10 Democrats. You got to stand up for decency. When I was getting attacked, I had people say to me, this was the line. It's nothing personal, just. And I said, it's only personal. How do you attack someone that's not personal? But you've got a deal. So here's what happened. And I, I had this conversation at the White House with a, a person who was feeling rather depressed now and come under a little attack. First of all, the first time it happens to you, you live on Xanax, you crawl up in the fetal position, and it's the best diet you can ever have. Your first scandal, you lose 20 pounds because you can't eat for weeks. You just can't turn on your computer. <clears throat> you don't want to see it. The second time, it's a little bit. By the third time, that's their problem, not your problem. But what do you do about it? The one thing you can't do, and I tell this to the Maryland official, I have a dear friend who is a Fox News head of Fox News who got caught up in the Me Too scandal when the guy's been a total gentleman his entire life, was a wonderful father, a wonderful boss. The Democrats in this case came after him because they had gotten Roger Ailes. They had gotten whoever else they went after. And so they kept going after Fox News people. A great guy. They just want to hide. They just want to blow over. In today's world, you are whatever two things say you are. Your Wikipedia page and your first Google page. So if you crawl up in a ball, your Google page just continues to build the scandal rather than who you really are. So what you have to do today is when you've been wrongly accused in a scandal, John McCormick, you've been tied to some insider trader. You have to do something more outrageous, but you'd rather be. You go work for Donald Trump and you get attacked for being a Trumper. You'd rather be that than a Me Too. And you take a radio show and you have, you know, outrageous headlines as a radio host. Um, but you've got to 
A, not per let it get to you because in this system, um, I, I once had a conversation with President Obama. And I said, you know, one of the times when they were attacking me, you sh should have kind of stepped up. And he said, that would have just brought more attention. So you don't mean that. I said, but you should see my, my Google page. He said, Howard, you should see my Google page. And so, in fact, the truth is that's their problem. If you've lived right, you haven't done anything wrong, and all these scanners are always cleared, there was nothing there, it was just gone on, whether you're the guy who was under Roger Ailes who didn't do anything wrong, or whether you're the Maryland Democratic official or John Lukumic, Um, but you have to control the social media around you because you have to go on with your life. In the introduction, when you were talking about your growing up, you mentioned that your father had hidden in the woods of Poland. That is a personal story, but I think it is one worth listening to. But since it's personal, I'm not going to give any other lead-ins. Let me just ask, what aspect of it would you like to talk about? And what do you think would be elucidating to our audience? Look, my father never told me his name. He never discussed a thing about it. It was, he died when I was 16. It took me 40 years later to find out about my father when I met people who were the children of other people who knew my father in those woods in Poland. I went and did more ribbon cutting events when I was the U.S. ambassador in Belgium. There's Holocaust memorials everywhere. And it's great. It took me going to Poland and learning about my father to realize at least how to move on. To, so I went back to my father's town. And I've done this in a speech. Anybody wants to search it's Howard Gutman, Personal Reflections on the Holocaust. It's a speech I gave in Buffalo about this, this story about my father and, and going back. And when I went back, um, my father grew up in a town of 3,000 people. It was 1,300 Jews and 1,700 Catholics at the time. It's 3,000 people today, 3,000 Catholics. And I went back. And I saw where my father's little hovel was and my grandmother's corner store. And in the town, I went with this group of the 20 people who were the children of the nine survivors of the town. Only nine people survived in that town. Um, they were ran, they were mayor to the woods, 11, two died, including my father's sister. And that story I tell in the speech, which is well listening to, but for another day. But I went back and I heard there was a 93-year-old woman on the street, right in the house, directly across the street, who knew my dad growing up in the town of Bialorowski in Poland. And I wanted to talk to that woman. Um, and she wouldn't come out because she thought I wanted to take back my father's house. This little hovel that when the Jews left that they had gotten. Um, the mayor of the, we were greeted, this group was greeted by an unbelievable greeting and the like, but the mayor of the town could not meet with us because the town's fire department building used to be the mikveh. And there's a fight, who should get this little brick building, the, 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 the group that fights for the lost assets of Jews or the town having its fire department. Uh, but instead, we were greeted by the deputy mayor and the town did a, a ceremony for us. Uh, a celebration. We had a big dinner. And the, the county entertainment troupe put on a show for these 
18 guests, the nine survivors, kids and their spouses, they put on a show and they did two songs in Yiddish. And it was the first time Yiddish had been spoken in Bialorovska, Poland since the 1940s, since the, since the Jews died. And then the deputy mayor made a speech, John. And he was thanking us for all coming. And he was talking how they're impressed they were from people from Australia and Canada and Belgium. And, the, and then he said, and today is the most important day in the history of Bialorovska. And it was the most important day in the history of Bialorovska because in all of its history, they had never been visited by a U.S. ambassador. And so one generation after my father had to flee from to the woods and be hunted for 27 months while 1,300 died, including dozens who were my aunts and uncles and grandparents, one generation after that, the return, my father's son's return to the town was the most important day in the history of the town, which means we can never forget. You always, always have to honor that that was a mikvah, that that was my father's house. But it is time to have more Yiddish sung in Bialorovska. It is time where a Jew coming to Bialorovska, now a town of 3,000 Poles who are Catholic, can be the most important day because that Jew, that son of that illegal immigrant in America could become a U.S. ambassador. And that matters. And that U.S. ambassador can change the world, even in Białorowska, Poland, by coming. And so it's a formula for how we move on. It's a formula for how you move on from all the world atrocities. Let's, um, hard to move on from that immediately to more uh, pedestrian business. But uh, not that there's anything pedestrian about the Gutman Group, but let's talk about that. It has extensive and, I guess, an interesting list of clients including the interest to listeners of this podcast, which include lots of financial advisors and registered investment advisors, a multi-platform wealth advisory firm and a corporate credit firm. You've also advised a real estate development company, served on the board of a liquid natural gas transport company, and currently chair the board of an e-commerce company in the alcohol beverage business. And you have interest in dredging of ports and wind power. So the first question is, is there an underlying theme to these ventures? And second, are you enjoying it? Can the emotional and intellectual reward of business measure up to those other experiences in life, or does it pale compared to high stakes law and government in Hollywood? I look at the world and I realize where certain practices uh, are ahead of their time and where we're behind. Um, that's often involved in sustainability issues. So climate change, coastal protection, uh, marine plastics. But I realize that the solution almost always is technology. The solution is always more business, not less business. And so I decide, look, I can change America or I can change the Middle East or I can this way. Now I got to figure out who should pay me to do it. So let me give you an example what excites me daily. I'm as excited about this as anything. So by 2050, John, by 2050, according to Chuck Schumer, 90,000 New Yorkers have to be relocated from south of Wall Street. Wall Street will be flooded by 2050. When he went to the US Army Corps of Engineers and said, how can I prevent the flooding? I have plans for a $10 billion wall. Can we build that? The US Army Corps of Engineers told Chuck Schumer, 
you, we cannot do anything for you unless you go speak to Howard Gutman. That's one thing. Second, if you go to Walmart, you go at Target, the stores are empty. The shelves are empty. We cannot get stuff on our shelves because you've got ships and vessels on the West Coast lined up for as far as you can see, trying to get in the West Coast. Next, it turns out the greatest country in the world cannot prevent its naval base in Norfolk from flooding. Norfolk floods every day. Our policy is wear boots. Miami floods every day. The policy is raise sidewalks. And I look at supply chain problems. It's cheaper to produce oil and gas in Houston than the country of Georgia. But Boston, every winter, gets its oil and gas from the country of Georgia because we can't get the oil and gas out of the port of Houston cheap enough to deliver it to Boston because we can't get major oil and gas ships into the port of Houston. I look at these problems and I knew the answer in a minute. I had spent four years in Belgium. Belgium is far more flood threat than, than New York, Lower Manhattan. And in the Netherlands, the Dutch built 7,000 acres onto the port of Rotterdam. If you built 1,700 acres onto Manhattan, you would make Manhattan 15% larger. It would be the most valuable real estate in the world. And you could build 1,700 acres onto Manhattan and solve a flooding problem. Why don't we just increase Manhattan? Why don't we just build a wall? The answer I knew immediately, we can't. We can't do coastal protection for Florida, for Houston, for Norfolk, for New York. We can't get our ports where we can fix the supply chain. And it's one problem. It's a 1906 law called the Dredge Act of 1906. So I said, boy, this is pretty stupid. There's an there's a anti-flooding proposal for Houston for the longest time since before the last hurricane called Ike Dyke. We have no prayer of building Ike Dyke. We have no prayer of building either the wall or extending lower Manhattan to prevent the flooding. We can't prevent the Norfolk Naval Base from flooding. We can't get our oil and gas ships out. We can't get large container ships in to our ports because we, of the, the 32 largest dredge ships in the world, zero are in, the, are in America or allowed to work in America. All 32 belong to two Dutch and two Belgian companies. They do the entire world's dredging. They take care of coastal protection. They deepen ports. They're not allowed to work in America. I said, this makes zero sense. It's a 1906 law. We have six ships that would be called dredges. They wouldn't be used anywhere in the world. They're less than, they're smaller than the 32 normal ships that do the rest of the world. So I've worked on that with a passion that makes total sense. So I do things I believe in, but if I can change our coastal protection and our cost of exports, by the way, just opening our ports with this dredging would change employment more than any other economic policy issue in America. Probably creates about 8 million jobs if we lower the cost of exports 15% and do the coastal protection. If I could create more jobs than any other policy ever and solve coastal protection, because I work on the Dredge Act, that's as exciting as anything I've done in law or private practice. Let's end with a couple of quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I think that's a function of a bygone era. Sort of like you work at your desk and then you go listen to Jimmy Buffett. But we carry our phones all the time. I get calls, I get emails. So I relax by when I'm working at night, I have a, it used to be a Washington Redskin. It's a Washington Commander podcast in the background. And I'll talk to my son, Colin. He's got a SAS Ventures. It's a venture capital fund. We'll talk about business or the commanders four times a day, usually in the same phone call. 
So when I'm getting angry about the slow pickup of the dredge legislation, or I've got a data information company called Genda that is revolutionizing e-commerce and alcohol, and I'm telling him about a new client that came into Genda, he might then say, did you see we passed on the safety from Notre Dame, Kyle Hamilton, and, the, and my getting angry at the commanders is my relaxation. It's just angry at a different focus. So you- You're clearly a Washington Commanders super fan. Most uh, sports fans, and I started my life as a sports writer, don't relax with their fandom. As you say, they get angry at their team. So um, do you listen to music to relax? What sort of music do you listen to? I would love the, the luxury of sitting poolside with a pina colada, with headphones, listening to music. It ain't happening, John. Not in this life, maybe the next one. My cardiologist said, it's not good for you if I, if I say, uh-oh, I've got Gutman as my patient. I have to meditate now. If you make your cardiologist feel top type A, it ain't great for your health, but it's just sort of who I am. It's, if I didn't do it, I'd feel bad. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the United States something, whispering in their ear, What would you tell them? That's easy because it's the cover of the book I'm writing, which is Swing Hard in Case You Hit. Fair enough. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Howard Gutman. As you've heard, Howard might indeed be the most interesting person in the world. Um, Although you've got to want a type A person to, to be that. Thanks, Howard. John, all the best. Take good care. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.